This episode is sponsored in part by MKL Reads. MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reeds where you can try reeds from various makers and select the one that is best for you. Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code DOUBLEREADDISH for free shipping on your first order. That's coupon code DOUBLE SPACE READ SPACE DISH, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Dedicated to providing excellent handmade oboe and bassoon reeds to discriminating double reed players of all ages and abilities, Double or Nothing Reeds has recently expanded to sell double reed tools and supplies, gift items, and more. This includes knives, knife blades, thread, staples, cane, bags, and resources for students. As authorized Fox and Yamaha dealers, they offer an extensive range of oboes and bassoons for all levels. In addition, they sell quality used instruments on consignment. If you're looking for private oboe lessons but can't find anyone nearby, Double or Nothing Reads offers oboe lessons via Skype. Visit doubleornothingreads.com for good quality and affordable reed-making supplies and accessories, lessons, instruments, and much more. That's doubleornothingreads.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hey, what episode are we on? Oh my God. 25. 25. No, no, 24. 24. 24. Lucky 24. It's not 24. It's the calendar year episode. Oh, that's true. Yes, because coming up is our one year anniversary. So cute. I'm excited. Wait, are you recording? We're totally recording right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just making sure. <laughs> so, calendar year which means we are nearing the end of the semester and crawling toward Thanksgiving break, which I could not be more excited about. I don't know about you. How are you feeling? I'm so excited. I love, Jackie, it's a holiday revolving purely around eating food. Like, I just love it so much. (laughs) I love the food. It is one of my favorite, like, meals. And if I can say I cook a mean Thanksgiving dinner. But also, as I think I mentioned before, Simo decided to have the wonderful idea of no fall break and a week-long Thanksgiving break. And in Get Oct- out of here. Yeah. In October, I was really feeling bad about not having a fall break because all my <laughs> students were like zombie land. It felt like it was the thriller video in the halls of Simo. <laughs> but now that we are rapidly approaching an entire week off, I feel like I'm doing cartwheels down the hallway, just like, <laughs> it's almost Thanksgiving break. It's only seven school days till Thanksgiving break. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like so excited just to get to relax and, you know, wear pajama pants 24-7 and, yeah, eat a lot of food. Uh, I'm so excited for Thanksgiving. I don't get a whole week off, unfortunately. When do you guys come off? Wednesday? Yeah, Wednesday. Like the food. Okay, so you know that I have um, like a special diet for my digestive issues. Yes, I know. <laughs> well, one year 
um, Becky made me a pumpkin pie that was just for me. Like it was a grain free, sugar free, preservative free pumpkin pie. And it was so good. And I'm telling you, I ate, I didn't really eat food except for that pie. I ate like three quarters of a pie. And that was my Thanksgiving meal. It was like four or five years ago. And she just told me that she bought canned pumpkins for another pie. And I'm super pumped. <laughs> so it's like that joke you see on TV where like someone cuts a dainty sliver of pie and sets it on a plate and then like takes the remaining pie plate and like walks off with a fork. Yes, that is my real life. <laughs> <laughs> I just love Thanksgiving food. It's so warm and cozy and uh, Thanksgiving, you're the best. So how's the end of your semester looking like? Do you have a bunch of performances or is it slowing down? Um, I have a bunch of performances. I actually just got to perform the Marcello Concerto with strings. How did that go? It was really fun. It was really fun. Um, I had never performed it like as a concerto with strings before, but it's awesome. And uh, it's it's funny because I, you know, I normally have a good bit of performance anxiety for concerto type things. Mm-hmm. And with this, it just feels so natural and normal and easy <laughs> that it's like, I think it's really helping with my performance anxiety. It's like sort of the perfect piece for me at the moment. Um, so by the end of the semester, I will have done it four times. And uh, tonight is number three. I'm going to do it at um, a cathedral in Biloxi, Mississippi, with the um, Magnolia uh, Concert Society. And uh, it's really fun. And then um, doing some orchestra gigs and planning my end-of-the-year party for the oboes in December. So it's going to be good. I'm excited. First, I want to say I am such a fan of the multiple performances of a piece. Oh, Oh, it's awesome. There's almost nothing that bums me out more than the one and done. Uh You know what I mean? When you put all this effort into repertoire and learning and then you just kind of perform it once and you're like, okay, on to the next. I love getting to do multiple performances of something, especially like a concerto or something like that. You know, Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah, and it's like you know I like the Marcello, but I had never like really fallen in love with the with, with it. But like now I'm like really falling in love with it, and I'm sort of doing that a little bit late in my oboe life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not that difficult of a piece, so a lot of you know high schoolers learn it, and um, young college students learn it. And it's just kind of wonderful to come back to it with like more love and appreciation. And I find that the performance process teaches me as much as the practice process. So you're totally right. It's awesome to perform something multiple times. Well, and you don't really get to practice performing a concerto. You know what I mean? Like, that's the one thing where when you get the opportunity, it's there. But, Mm -hmm. you know, we can practice being with piano. We can practice recitals and that type of stuff. But a concerto is such a unique kind of a more rare thing that that's super awesome you get five performances mm-hmm. yeah. before but oh four still <laughs> <laughs> no it's really great I'm super I'm super excited for it and really happy about it I don't know maybe that would be a good like project for you know the students and young professionals out there to like put together some strings and 
some house concerts and, you know, just play all this stuff, like, in real life so that it becomes a living thing. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Um, So my end of the semester actually is kind of dissipating to a halt, but my January is shaping up to be completely insane. And so I'm viewing my late November and December as a way to prepare, you know, for my crazy. Just to give you an idea, we come back from the winter break and I get to be one of the guest artists at Aaron Off's um, Double Read Day at Jacksonville State. So I'm super excited about that. Um, Go Aaron. Yes, I cannot wait. And then three days later, I will be hosting my own Double Read Day. Uh, with Melissa Bosma from Oklahoma State, which I can't Woo-hoo. wait for. And then three days after that is my faculty recital where I will be playing the Barrio Sequenza for the first time. <laughs> wow. Um, so, yeah, I'm, <laughs> it's going to be a very hectic week, and I will, you know, prepare for it, and it'll all be fine, but for it to all be fine, I kind of have to be thinking about it now. So I'm really excited that the last part of the semester is less intense, so I can kind of be looking forward and making a ton of reads and, you know, Uh all that stuff that we do. What is your, like, when you're in the heat of the, like, this crazy um, part of the semester for you, what are your, like, coping techniques? Peppermint tea. I know it's like oh, a yeah. quintessentially like native thing to cope with peppermint tea, um, but it does actually help, you know, and it can really help um, settle your stomach and before bed is a really good idea because it mm. can just kind of um, aid with sleep and settle your mind. I've actually been known to give the SEMO kids who I notice are really stressed out like bags of peppermint tea and just like drink this before you go to bed your life will be fine um <laughs> and this'll it won't take care of everything but even if it's a placebo effect i'm fine with using peppermint tea for the placebo effect but that's my thing i've heard that the placebo is the most powerful drug why not you know if it's just like a moment to tell yourself you're going to be fine you're going to be calm now, you're going to get a good night's sleep, then, hey, works for me. So for my shout-out this week, I'm shouting out a little article on um, the Violin Channel, and it's actually kind of more of an extended quote from violinist Kathleen Winkler, um, and it's titled, How Competitions Can Shape Your Life and Career. Um, And I'm not going to read the whole quote, um, but essentially it talks about how um, for this professional, she had the dream of being a concert master or playing in a string quartet. Um, And her first job out of college was at a small private university music department. She was doing a lot of non-major courses like music of print. Um, or smaller scale chamber music coaching and it was for minimal pay and she was just kind of feeling frustrated and dissatisfied Um, so someone suggested that she do the Carl Nielsen International Violin Competition in Denmark and she talks about she ended up winning the competition but really the um, point of the blog is more about having this big goal 
outside of her daily life helped her to really channel um, her energy and her focus in practicing and get beyond the things that were kind of dissatisfying about her day-to-day job and helped her capitalize on practice time and motivation and momentum and all that type of stuff. And it, it made me reflect on why I chose to take on the Bariosi cleanse, you know, and kind of remind myself mm-hmm. of like, you know, the benefit of a big goal, the benefit of a big project. So I loved reading this. We'll link to it in the show notes, definitely. Very cool. Yeah. Um, and, you know, competition, it has different, I guess it manifests differently with different people. Some people really thrive in a competitive environment and some people not so much. But this article kind of talks more about competition with oneself, which we've talked about a lot on the podcast. And um, yeah, it just kind of made me reflect on daily goals, big goals, small goals, and competition with myself. That's awesome. I think as performers that we um, rely on the validation of others, you know, like external motivators a lot, especially, you know, um, it's easy to do that as a student. And then, you know, you want, you, you need the approval of a committee in order to get a job. And it's all, you know, it can, it can be very external focused, but to move it inward, I think is so much more powerful and longer lasting. And I think that's awesome. And empowering. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some cool competitive opportunities going on right now. Are there not? There is actually. For the oboes out there, they have announced, IDRS has announced the repertoire for the 2018 Young Artist Competition for Oboe. It's an oboe year this year. And um, it looks really good. It's the Telemann Fantasy Number no. 8 in E minor, the Cromer Oboe Concerto Number no. 2 in F major, and uh, Alyssa Morris's Four Personalities um, Movements. One, three, and four, and then the Godard Legend Pastoral from Saint Ecosis. Oh my God, I don't know French. I'm so sorry to all the people who know French. <laughs> Actually, at the start of that, I was like, "Oh, she's doing good." I could not do that good, so <laughs> I'm not one to help you out. If it, I mean, if it makes anyone feel better, I'm trying to learn French on Duolingo. <laughs> I'm working on it, but many apologies to all the French speakers out there for the massacre of that word. Um, That's for the final round. Um, But yeah, this is a really great opportunity for oboists who have not reached their 22nd birthday by the date of the final round, which is August 30th, 2018. So this is specifically for young people, and it's worldwide, and it's a huge opportunity to go for something big and you never know when it pay, when it may pay off really big for you too. Well, and that means that this is a July Fox year for the bassoons. Um, oh. So that uh, information is also available on January 1st, but likewise with the oboe competition, they have the repertoire up. It looks like the Saint-Saëns Sonata, Mozart Concerto, Bach Sonata Number no. 2, and Kirk 
O. Riordan, uh, Temptation for Solo Bassoon, um, and that information is on IDRS.org, and that's for um, even older people up to your 31st birthday. Um, ooh, and I also want to be sure to mention um, the Bassoon Chamber Music Composition Competition. Um, their deadline is December 15th, and they are looking for pieces for bassoon by women composers, and that's going to be the material for the Meg Quigley competition, um, which will be coming up next time in January of 2019. So if you compose or if you know any friends who compose and are women, make sure to put that on their radar. We want to make sure to support them as well. Awesome. Jenna Engel loves the oboe. She has built her business on providing high-quality, handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Jenna Engel Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that's right for you. Double Read Dish listeners can use the code DISH, that's D-I-S-H, all caps, for 10% off your first order at JanetEngel.com. Since day one, Genda Read Knives have been the highest quality and the sharpest read knives on the market, and Genda Industries has been a driving force in educating double read players on how to sharpen and maintain their read knives since it is the single most important tool in our read-making kit. Now, Genda has launched a full line of sharpening equipment to meet your sharpening needs. They are offering a wide variety of full-size and travel-size sharpening stones, strops, and compounds that can be utilized in the studio, the music hall, or on the go, and will make your sharpening better. You've got a good reed knife, now it's time to start using good sharpening equipment. Add the code DRDGENDA, all caps, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any Genda Reed Knife maintenance kit, Reed Knife sharpening book, cutting block, and Reed tool roll. Visit them at GendaIndustries.com. That's J-E-N-D-E-I-N-D-U-S-T-R-I-E-S.com. Oh, and they're more than just Reed Knives. We are so excited to welcome to Double Read Dish, Courtney Miller, Assistant Professor of Oboe at the University of Iowa. Courtney, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to be here and spend this time with you ladies. We have a stock first question, but it's a really great jumping off point. Um, can you please tell us about your training and educational journey and how you got to where you are today? Oof, that is that is a great way to start off. So. I started playing the violin when I was when I was quite young. My mom uh, put me in violin lessons and Suzuki violin lessons, as a lot of uh, parents do. And so I was like, you know, three or four and playing the twinkle, twinkle variations, um, all different types of ways, possibly holding the bow somewhat correctly on the string. Well, I don't know. Um, and, you know, I continued with violin for many years. And then I got to junior high school and I wanted to be in the school music program. Uh, I grew up in Florida, and we have a lot of band programs in Florida, but my, my school district did not have an orchestra program. So at that point in time, you know, I, I showed up and did a little instrument zoo, and, you know, I, I had in my mind either oboe or French horn. And 
I tried to buzz into the mouthpiece of the French horn, and it just, you know, try as I might, it was not happening. But on the oboe, I made this, you know, noise immediately, and I think that's a good thing for a beginning oboist, is just to immediately make sound without a lot of production. And uh, that's kind of the how I became a, an oboist, or began my journey on the oboe. And I, uh, you know, continued to play through high school, did youth orchestra, and I did my undergraduate at Florida State University and studied with uh, Eric Olson. And, uh, Galita, I know that we have a, a common mentor. Love him. I love yeah. him. <laughs> he is he's so wonderful, absolutely, mm-hmm. and still a part of my life today, which I really love. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I went to the Cleveland Institute of Music for my master's, so... Uh, John Mack is my teacher there, and I guess, you know, we all have these snap memories in our heads of important events, and I think one of my, just this, this freeze frame uh, situation was I was just hanging out at home, and I got a phone call, and just to date it a little bit, it was an actual landline, but it was a phone call, and on the other end was John Mack, and he said, is this Courtney, and I said, well, well, yes, he goes, this is John Mack, I'm here to welcome you to the Cleveland Institute of Music family. And it was just, it was just so special. It's just one of those, I just, I think my heart stopped, you know, I think I probably got a little teary eyed. I I didn't even know how to, how to respond. Of course, yes, but uh, that was a very special way to receive uh, your acceptance. So I went to the Institute, the Cleveland Institute of Music, and I studied with John Mack. And it's kind of a, a really amazing time to study with him because he had just retired from the orchestra. So he had, he had, I think, a lot of spare time. I'm, I'm doing spare time in quotes with my fingers. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but I was really amazing. So he did all the chamber music coaching for woodwind players. He ran the woodwind sectionals for orchestra, did the orchestra readings, and he did lessons and studio class. So it seemed like, it seemed like I saw him almost every day. Uh, so it was really just, just incredible. And he was very giving with his time and very supportive. In uh, my first year at CIM, there were a couple of regional orchestra auditions, and I, I won two of them. Uh, I won a position with the Cannes Symphony and then this group called City Music. And that was uh, really wonderful because then I was playing in the community and you know, getting those two jobs immediately put me on the sub list for a lot of different orchestras. So at CIM, I was playing with the school orchestra and the regional orchestras. And that's only important because once I graduated, I already had a lot of work. Um, with the Cleveland Pops, the Cleveland Opera, a variety of groups. And so I decided, well, I'll stay in Cleveland, I'll take auditions, I'll build a studio. And that's pretty much how my life was for about six or seven years. And it was a really good life. Uh, I ended up building a studio of about 30 students. And I was adjunct professor at this university called Ashland University. And I never, I never really wanted for work. Um, I ended up playing, I think, about three subscription concerts a month and a pop. So I was really very busy. And musical life, in a lot of ways, was very, very good. Um, however, I was kind of restless. And I was taking auditions. And, and I mentioned that a little bit. And, you know, I'm sure we've all taken auditions in our life. I mean, obviously, from youth orchestra to collegiate to professional to summer music festivals. It's, you know, it's kind of a, a constant in our lives. And there were years where I would I would do really well, and like I was hot, and I would make finals a lot. But there was this small, <laughs> small missing piece, and it's a small detail, really. But I wasn't I wasn't actually winning. <laughs> <laughs> and you know you hate you hate to even focus on such a small aspect, but um, <laughs> negative Nancy over here, geez. <laughs> I know you have to bring that up, and you know I'm not sure if any of you have gone through a period of time where you know you're not quite getting exactly what you want. Maybe that's just called life. 
Um, <laughs> so as I was, you know, in my late 20s at this point, thinking, well, my life is very good. I'm playing music. I've got wonderful students. Do I even do I even dare to dream bigger? Do what? What, what should I do here? And um, but clear, clearly, as far as the big job hunt for the audition circuit on orchestras, you know, it wasn't working out. And I, I figured if it if it if it was going to work out, I, I had to change something I was doing. Um, I had to either give up on myself and say, well, this I'm not good enough, or just change something in the equation. So I opted for the latter. I opted to be slightly a little more objective about it and just say, what can I do to become better? So at that point in time, I. Uh, I took some lessons with some people, and one of those people uh, happened to be John Ferrillo, who is, uh, well, we all know who John Ferrillo is, principal over the Boston Symphony, and, uh, you know, I went to Boston, played for him, and we, we really hit it off, and uh, I auditioned for my doctorate with him, and then that kind of started the next phase of my life, the next uh, creative chunk, so uh, I left everything in Cleveland, uh, hopped in my car, and started my DMA with him at Boston University. He was an amazing teacher. Uh, I said I said about all my teachers, and one thing I, I realized listening to your podcast is, is everybody feels that way about their teachers, and I think that's really a strong testament to our profession. Mm-hmm. I, I'm everybody you've had on the show has been like, I've had the best teachers, and I think it's really wonderful that we can we can say that, and I, I absolutely feel that way. I, I'm indebted to all of my teachers so very much. So when John Furlow found me, I, I would say that I was a pretty good player. I was professional. I had been well-trained. Um, and he, he took me up, and he, he polished me right up. He worked me very hard. Um, but I'm so, so thankful to him. He, in his teaching, he just, his work with me on tone production and creativity and nuance, he opened up uh, worlds of imagination and creativity that I didn't even know was possible with just a single note. And I mean, I, I think that I always practice to improve, but I feel like he's just raised the ceiling. Like, there's no roof on creativity in practice or performance um, with him. And, um, yeah, that's a, a long story short, short story long, maybe a little bit of both. <laughs> it it seemed like in Cleveland your life was maybe focused on the goal of an orchestral position. I know you said you had a really sizable studio. Um, a lot of times we think of the DMA as, you know, kind of a – for someone hoping to pursue academia, did you feel a shift from um, performance to pedagogy in terms of focus, or did you always emphasize both equally? I'm kind of interested in your views on that when you went into your DMA. I think pedagogy is always a part of our lives. Uh, it's that, you know, the two sides of the same coin, performing and teaching. They sharpen one another. We get inspired by our students. And we perform, and then we have ideas that we take to our students and, and vice versa. I'm trying to think back to, you know, uh, 29 or 30-year-old uh, Courtney. And I wasn't, you know, who, sometimes we think we know what we want out of life. And it's hard to know where we got these ideas. Maybe someone else put these ideas in our heads. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like in order to be successful, you have to be a principal oboist of a major symphony orchestra. And I think that's, you know, what a lot of us grew up hearing, certainly older generation. And something you deal with on your show a lot is uh, redefining success. Right. I don't know that there was a shift directly because I love teaching. I love teaching. I've always loved teaching. And the, the fact that I had an oboe studio of 30 students testifies to that. So, I mean, when I left Cleveland, one of the things that I actually missed the most was my students. It's a weird thing to say, but I, I really missed them. Uh, you know, especially the ones that we'd start when they were 12 and then you'd watch them grow up. I wasn't sure exactly what I was looking for. 
when I left Cleveland to Boston, I, I didn't have a necessary end goal, but I knew that I wanted to become a better musician, a better oboe player, and just change something in the equation of my life. And I really looked to John Ferrillo as, as a as an incredible performer and teacher to help me with that. And I will also say that, you know, John Mack, incredibly caring, incredibly devoted, as was Eric Olson. And when I first moved to Boston, I had this conversation with myself, like like any sane person does. We talk to ourselves. <laughs> and I said, you have to manage your expectations here. This will just be one hour a week. He's very busy. He will not, you know, be able to give you the kind of care that your other teachers have. And, boy, was I wrong with that statement. Uh, because in Boston, I found not only just an incredible player and teacher, but also a, another, I can't believe I'm so lucky, another really wonderful mentor who was devoted to teaching. So in the shift from performing to teaching, I think all my teachers have naturally been incredibly devoted, passionate, and dedicated teachers. So that's something that's just been modeled to me for the past, you know, 20 years. No, I think it's great because, you know, I think a lot of our listeners maybe don't have all the answers or the perfect plan. I'm sure some are very hyper-focused on a specific goal and some are probably, you know, maybe feel insecure that that goal is not so defined other than I love my instruments. I think it's really good, you know, to hear all sorts of experiences. I also want to say that I'm I'm happy to talk about how my, my focus, there was, there was a a time in my life where my focus did actually absolutely switch to college profession, college teaching, but that was actually one summer while I was in Boston and I can actually pinpoint to a specific two or three month period where I was doing some soul searching. Yeah, please do. Okay. Uh, well, I, I think it was between my second and third year of my DMA. I, I had just uh, finished a recital as, as one does and prepared, practiced extremely hard, paid attention to every nuance, taped myself a lot. And, you know, I performed, maybe there were, you know, five or six people in the audience, you know, and it, it just kind of, I don't know. And it was at the end of the year. So at this point in my life, I was still faculty at Baldwin Wallace Conservatory. They have this um, summer music program called the, uh, I want to say it's called the Summer Music Institute still. And I had this short drive of 11 hours from Boston to Cleveland. <laughs> and, you know, I had just played this recital and, you know, it's a good, good time to spend with myself just kind of thinking about some small subjects, life, you know, what am I doing with my life? Does what I do matter? Why do I do what I do? Why do we care if every single note ends beautifully and we resolve the phrase properly? Um, think, things like that. So small, small, small subject matters to tackle. Um, I just started thinking about, in a lot of ways in my life, a disconnect between the things, music, what I'm so passionate about, and my friends who are non-musicians and just how we really don't understand each other's world. And I just kind of started thinking how I love music. I love playing the oboe, and it, it's one of the things that drives me every day. And how can I relate to people who aren't musicians? How can I help them understand my world? Is playing a beautiful recital, is it helping? Does it, does, it help, does it help the connection that I might have personally with other people or even music with society? Um, so, again, this, 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 converse, this conversation, this thought process took a good 11 hours there and then back. And, but I just started thinking about common interests, things that I might like that may be essentially finding common ground with the audience or my friends that common shared interests that could help them understand my world. So we could find something we both like that, that I could use to invite them into my world and likewise help me understand parts of their world that I didn't understand. And I started several projects and they were all kind of 
um, started this summer. On a similar note, I'd always, always wanted to record this uh, this piece by Marcia Krauss called Three Fairy Tales. I came across it in around 2003 when I was doing my undergrad at Florida State, and it was, I was supposed to record it in Cleveland with the composer funding it, and funding fell through, and so it's just been kind of on my back burner. I always told myself, when I get a when I get a real job, whatever that mm. is, that's in quotations again, when I've made it, I'll I'll make my CD, I'll record it then, and I think on this drive, I just I just said, no, I'm going to do the things I want to do now, whatever they are. I'm going to record a CD now. I'm in Boston now. I've got great musicians around me. I don't know what the future holds, but I'm going to take advantage of the many really wonderful things in my life right now. And so that summer I embarked on <laughs> the process of making my first CD as a DMA student, and then I took on some uh, less what I would consider less serious projects, just more fun, working with some different dancers and and other aspects that really fed my soul and also I felt would help connect me with people who maybe didn't spend hours every day practicing their instruments. So what was that recording process like as a DMA student who also had responsibilities, you know, you were working <laughs> and learning? You know, we haven't talked about that, but so, you know, DMA, yeah, I was I was definitely working a lot. I mean, I, I ran John Furlow's company, Harvard, Harvard Double Reads. I was a full-time student. I had a teaching assistant at BU. I was also teaching at Boston College adjunct. I was running the NEC prep read class with John Furillo. And there were a couple other odd things I was doing in there as well. So, ah, goodness, recording. I think I'm the kind of person that if I really believe in something or if I'm passionate about it, I'll just, <laughs> hate to say, barrel through. And that, that's essentially what it was. But the process was I... It was over the summer when we have a little bit of time to breathe is when I start putting my ducks in a row. And at this point, I, I had some friends who were on a CD label, and I, I contacted them and, you know, said, can you put me in contact? Can you advise me? How should I go about doing this? And it's interesting. What, one thing I felt when I was doing the CD process, and I use the word felt, but um, I would say that I was surrounded by good people. Um, and I'm not talking about oboists or teachers or anything here, just, just good people in life. But most people were negative when I started investigating this possibility uh, for a variety. I, who knows the reasons? You know, it's the hole in the South. Oh, bless your heart. <laughs> that kind of thing where, you know, they're saying something nice, but maybe bless your heart. Bless, you know, you bless him. Heart. Bless him. <laughs> you know, uh, so it, most people kind of dissuaded me, but eventually I got to someone who said, he said, well, I don't really encourage this, but if you want to do it, here's how you can do it. So um, I had I had several live recordings of this, this song cycle that I was really passionate. I'm still really passionate about it. It's a great song cycle. It's about 20, 25 minutes, and it goes through three fairy tales with soprano, oboe, and piano. And it's just it's extremely fun and extremely challenging, and the crowd audience loves it. It hadn't been recorded. And it was written for my teacher, John Mack, and anyway, he was a live recording of him doing it, but nothing studio done. So that was the motivating factor was just song cycle. So I uh, sent in a demo to a Centaur record company. I had a cover letter. I did sent in some headshots, and I sent it via my connection, who already was a recording artist with them, just to make sure it got to the proper person, you know, and some time went by, and then I, I received a contract. And so at this point, I had a contract with this record label. I um, I didn't have the rest of my um, repertoire planned. I did not necessarily have my musicians planned, and I didn't have any money. Uh, but these were small things, really. I had the contract, and I used that as 
the driving force. I thought, especially as a, as a DMA student, uh, it gave me validity so that it gave me the confidence to approach people and say, this is happening. I'm not approaching you saying I'm dreaming about making a CD. I have a contract that says in a year I will submit the master to this company. So there's, there's a project, it's identified, and there's a concrete deadline. And then I just start, you know, many, many people help me. I'm incredibly indebted to my, my sound engineer, Jim Donahue, who was wonderful to work with, just absolute star. I mean, so many people, this project had a real, I want to say hometown feel to it, but everybody involved in this project was emotionally connected to it. They were really excited about it. And I just felt like I had a really good team and we were all in it to create a really uh, outstanding musical, musical endeavor. I didn't, you know, so that was, that was, that was, part of that experience and I can go into more or less detail about that. And I just recorded another CD this summer and it was a, you know, a very different, different experience. It was less, less hard, if that's a correct English. It was easier <laughs> this time around for sure. So for somebody out there who's listening, who might have like an inkling that they maybe want to do that in the future, what are the steps that they should take in order to make that happen for themselves? Yeah. I can I can break it down. There are many. There are a couple of different ways you can. There are a couple of different ways you can go about doing it. Um, like right now, I don't have a label, but I I think if you're young, if you can, if you're young, um, we're all young. I, I think I, if if there, I think having a contract beforehand has some challenges. It's motivating, but then it's also extreme pressure. I remember being very stressed out in in the last month of editing because we really had to get this done, um, or the contract would be would be null and void. Um, I would say if you want to make a CD. I would say believe in the repertoire and have a concrete reason for why you want to do it. Uh, and if you're passionate about a project and you really believe in it and you have legitimate reasons for believing in it, I would say absolutely go for it and try what come at it from all different angles. And if you hit brick walls, which let me tell you, assuredly you will um, just keep trying to break them down. And it might mean that you have to come that, at that from 360 degrees, every single degree around that problem. Mm. But you'll, you'll find a way. And as far as fin financing was the biggest hurdle for me at that point in time. Uh, and some people do crowdsourcing. There are many, many ways. I, I had a, what I call a crummy gig fund. <laughs> um, <laughs> so sometimes, you know, if you take a gig that kind of sucks your soul, uh, we've all been there, uh, put, a, put that in a separate bank account and, um, Put that in, you know, and pour it towards something that actually feeds your soul if you can. And I, I took on credit card debt for this CD. And I, I don't know that, again, that's it's all on where you are in your life. But it was kind of a gamble. It, it paid off. But I would say that if you really believe in something, do it. And the rest will – you'll find a way to make the small details work out. Small details should never stand in your way from doing something that's actually great or that you really believe in. Thank you. That's good advice. Uh, you referred – to your dance project and I'd love for you to talk more about that we'll make sure to link to your dance videos um, in the show description um, but I've, I've watched them before and enjoyed them the Mozart oboe quartet I believe it's in the Boston Common perhaps and um, the Eber belly dance talk to our listeners about what inspired you to do that and what you learned from it and how it relates to that goal that you referred to of making what we do more accessible or reaching more people well that these are these were what i just call my my fun box of projects um there was really no logical absolutely no logical reason for me to make for any from anybody on the outside 
for me to make these videos because they were a lot of work. But I mean, for me, there were so many, so many reasons. Um, I was starting, this was back when that, and the show's still on, So You Think You Can Dance is still on. Uh, and it's still doing really well. But this was maybe the third or fourth season. And it was, I, I was, I was really into it. It kind of gave me a slight, the lens into the art world where it wasn't music. So something similar. And it was interesting watching how, well, physical movement, interpreting, interpreting music more than just ballet, um, which was generally what I had, had been a little more familiar with. So I, I, I really enjoyed that show, but this was part of the whole finding common ground, finding something that I might, that might be, have more widespread appeal than just maybe an oboist. I feel that as an oboist, we may not have the mass appeal that we might desire. <laughs> <laughs> We're not a, a common, a common word, but at this particular point in time, so you think you could dance had auditions in Boston. And I thought, well, I would watch the show and I think it would just be an incredible experience to work with a hip hop dancer. So I watched the show specifically for people who were excellent hip hop dancers, but maybe couldn't do all the other genres and were, were going to get cut. So that I had a specific uh, thing I was looking for. And I, the first guy I approached actually, um, he remained nameless, but he was wonderful. He, he got back to me immediately and he was in Boston. He said, ah, oh, you know, I would love to work with you. I just, I can't dance to your music. I was like, I've tried, I just can't do it. And so the next person I reached out to was, um, Ernest Phillips or Enoch, and I, you know, he actually, I say he was, he was the person I was most drawn to, but he was just seemed so hard hitting. I was like, I don't know if this can work. I mean, this guy, it's, he, he's, especially some of his, his, his physical, his physical, the way he physically danced, it's very hard hitting. He does a lot of crump. It's a lot more impact. Uh, and when he jumped on it, he emailed me back the very next day. Um, and I said, well, let's just do it. And at that point in time, um, we talked a little bit. We kind of had the storyboard going on and came up a day early, walked around the Boston Commons and had our map of the video. So we had basically where the, the different scenes and the different backdrops for each part of the video. And the shoot was actually uh, two of his siblings came. And then I had a really good friend, have a really good friend, Salon Mitchell, whom I met when I was, uh, he was at BU, but we actually got started working together. And we were both working desk jobs. So again, I was working a job. It was summertime in Boston. I didn't have any money. So I was working a desk job for eight hours a day. And he was, he was also working there with me and he did some video work. So we all, you know, they followed us around Boston Commons and somebody held a boom box with um, my recording of the Mozart. So we could, we could sync it up later. And that was the start of it. And then six months editing it with salon in the basement at Boston university. But so that's kind of how that went. And there's a little bit of a story for each one similar to that. Um, I think cold calling something I do really well. I have no problem just calling someone up as a random crazy oboist and explaining to them why they definitely need to work with me and how it will change their lives. <laughs> Everybody needs oboe in their life. They just don't realize it. <laughs> so that's kind of how, how I approach these, these cold cold calls. And I'm, I'm currently working with a wonderful dancer, Kristen Mars at University of Iowa. And we've just kind of wrapped up a two-year collaboration that's blown my mind and her her is ballet and modern dance and we just went on on tour and did basically an entire half recital uh that's just a duet between oboe and dancer and we performed at idrs and there will be some some upcoming videos of us that i'm really excited about as well kind of a follow-up to that you strike me as someone who has creative ideas and then just says okay i'm gonna go do that and um I, that's something that I think is really admirable. And 
a lot of people, perhaps myself included, I don't know, um, you know, have ideas and then say, yeah, someday. Kind of like you were saying before with your CD. Oh, someday I'll do that. Yeah. And we don't necessarily give ourselves permission to just pursue or do. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you think that's something inherent to your personality or did you have to overcome certain things? What advice do you have for people who have ideas that they're not doing right now? Wow, those are that's a good question. As all your questions are, I'm I'm at, I'm fairly inherently quiet. Uh, people may not believe that, but I'm, I'm actually kind of a quiet person. Uh, I let an idea, and again, I just I have a couple kind of ideas that are in the, in the progress right now that I've written grants for. And writing grants for my seedling ideas were actually really hard because I had normally I don't share my ideas with the world until I am ready to take all kinds of abuse for them. I don't know if that makes sense until I have mm-hmm. enough enough armor built up within my, my being, within my heart, to withstand people I care about looking at me like I'm crazy. So I think I, I let them sit and I let them marinate a little bit within within me before I take them out into the world. And then I have the boldness, I think, um, to cut through them. And so one thing, John Mack is an incredible inspiration to my life always. And he, he had this, this inner confidence about him. When you played for him, when you're with him, you just felt like a million bucks. And he would even use that, that word. You're like, ah, oh, you sound like a million bucks today. Um, but he had these just quick, you know, small visualizations like, you know, go in there like a knight in shining armor. Um, he, he, I don't know that he ever thought, went to a motivational speaker or anything, but he was definitely a real motivating force. Um, and I, especially when I first went to CIM, I felt like an underdog. I don't think anybody would look at me now and say I'm an underdog, but my first cup, first year at Florida, I mean, at CIM, I felt like an underdog. Every, I was playing in a different arena. I come from a state university a little bit. Everybody else there, you know, was either started their undergrad there or just had a little bit different, maybe more, um, I don't want to say impressive background, but, you know, just a little bit, little bit different experiences than I had growing up. Um, so I think there's always a little bit of this still underdog drive in me, but Advice is, and all my, let me be real here, all my ideas don't work, okay? (laughs) (laughs) All my ideas are not good ideas. Sometimes I pitch an idea or I try it and I hit enough walls and I really rethink it. I'm like, maybe, maybe this one should just die. Mm -hmm. Or it dies and I retweak it a little bit. So like, not, I don't, I have a lot of really bad ideas too. Um, (laughs) But uh, I think just, you know, persistence and between and in every every successful project, uh, there's going to be a set of failures that the world doesn't see behind that success, mm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even though I do creative things with the oboe, I, I think this is probably inherent, but my approach to the oboe is very, very traditional. So, you know, when I first said I was going to do a Mozart a hip-hop video, they're like, oh, you're going to add beats. And I'm like, no, 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 no. So I really believe in Mozart, and I really believe in all of the the uh, nuances and the inflections, and I want to say the traditional way in which we approach it. So when I do collaborate, or when I when I do collaborate or work with someone in a different genre, I believe we strengthen each other by holding absolutely true to our values and what we're trained to do. So I, I don't really ever when I when I approach a collaboration, I never want to ever water down what I do, but rather use a different genre or a different perspective to to strengthen strengthen what I do. Um, I have a follow-up question to that, and it might be a little um, winding, but bear with me. Okay. Um, this, your answer really reminds me of um, 
A few months ago, Jackie, when we interviewed Dan Schwartz for the Maverick series, he talked about composing and how playing his own compositions helps his performance anxiety because he made it. (laughs) So he's the the premier authority on his own work. And I wonder, Courtney, if that is also true for these really interesting, um, uh, like, cross, genre collaborations that you do mm. with people outside of music does that you know your ownership of that does that make the performance anxiety better or you know I'm just curious oh. about like how that impacts oh. your performance mentality Oof. Well, we're going into there's lots of there's lots of things in that question um wow I don't I don't know that so with collaboration one of the things I, I that's challenging about it that I, I love is that I might have I might, I might have an idea of where I want it to go when I start, but whenever you collaborate with someone else who's an expert in their field, they know their field. So you end up, I always end up leaving my initial, what I think is the bullseye when I start a project is not actually the bullseye when we begin working on it or when we end it, because we do genuinely influence each other. Um, and that's one of the things I, I really love about it. I might, I will definitely have something set that I want to accomplish with this person, but as we begin working together and I really felt this way with with Kristen especially I, I every every week um last semester I go over to the ballet studio and we just work together and and play and move together in the ballet studio uh where we we ended up with far, was way different than anything I could have perceived when we started um even that rehearsal that day uh I actually was pretty nervous performing with Kristen uh so I don't I don't know that that um that it helps my nerves I think I was nervous performing with Kristen um, because I felt a little vulnerable. I think, you know, with where when you we play a duet with a musician, you're not out there as much. But when there's no music stand or when you're you're communicating through two different mediums, visual and sound, I just felt like I had to open up a little more of myself or myself differently than than if I'm just not just playing chamber music, but playing chamber music with um with my colleagues. I think what I like about what I love about collaborations is it helps it brings a different perspective and it, it, it makes, it brings to life a part of me I didn't know existed, um, that I couldn't perceive of or find on my own. So I guess maybe I'm using my collaborators a little bit if I, if that sounds a little selfish, but I think we both bring something out in each other, uh, that really, that I, I that was really one of the most inspiring things last semester were those rehearsals with Kristen. Um, and it definitely influenced the rest of my, my day and week. I don't know if that answers your question or not. Yeah. And it, it sounds like, you know, opening it, uh, it forced you to open yourself to the audience in a way that you wouldn't normally have to. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. Especially with the Elliot Carter, uh, you know, moving around today, being part of the choreography um, and having her very, at various points in that, that she, ne- she didn't have, she never hit me, but you know, I watched the video and I'm like, Oh my gosh, you're like, you're really, you're like right up on me there. I had no idea that you're behind me, you know? Um, so just um, vulnerability in a lot, a lot of ways, including, Having to explain, you know, and communicate about music <laughs> to someone who's not a musician, and she definitely had to communicate many things. I mean, she, walking is hard for me. Like, when our first rehearsal, she goes, I was under the impression you could walk and play the oboe. And <laughs> I, 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 was, I was under that impression, too. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> we live and we learn. <laughs> <laughs> 
So you talked to us about your first CD. Do you have any um, future plans to record? What's next on the docket for you in that regard? Oh, well, I'm really excited about this project that I'm just wrapping up. It's a (laughs) recording project and performing project of music for the oboe by Portuguese composers. And it's, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. So, um, most people don't have a Portuguese composer that rolls off the tip of their tongue if they're an oboist, but I now do. I feel like I have household names and, and, and fairly good friends across the ocean that I've been working on with this project the past couple of years. So I, I started this project by collaborating with a pianist in Boston named Inez Andrade, and uh, she's Portuguese from Lisbon, and she started integrating uh, Portuguese compositions into some of her recitals, and I, I really enjoyed them. And I thought, well, I don't, I don't know anything about Portuguese music. Maybe there's some stuff for oboe, you know, and I... I started doing research, and there's a lot for oboe by Portuguese composers. And so I, I, I listened to about 40 or 50 different composers' works and, you know, stalked oboists over there, Facebook stalked composers, contacted several of them, and um, I have this, this, this CD of about 70 minutes worth of music that is all for the oboe and world premiere recordings, and three of them are new commissions that – I approached the composer, and they were kind enough to write a piece for me and work with me in the process. And it's it's all, you know, basically music written in the past decade, except there is one transcription by Antonio Fragoso that was written for the violin around the turn of the 20th century. But everything else is is very recent. It's a lot of fun to play, uh, very accessible to the audience. And, um, yeah, that's that's about my new project, and I'm in the final editing stages now, so hopefully that, that's coming coming out sometime in the near future. Very exciting. That is awesome. I would like to know, considering your very busy schedule, how do you fit in your practice time, and how do you prioritize, you know, your your goals for the day? <laughs> that's such a good question, and I, I love listening to it. Uh, your guests talk about that. I, I I love practicing. I love specifically long tones and and scales and that kind of fundamental practice that that strengthens me. Basically, gets my mouth and my my just gets me set for the whole day, so that it just improves my game, my playing the rest of the day. I'm I'm having to shift my schedule to be more of an early bird. I, I'm not an early bird, uh, definitely not by any any means of comparison. But I think somewhere in the past decade, doing all these Free, freelancing and contract orchestras, and actually this is the first year in since 2004 that I'm not a contract member of an orchestra. So it's it's kind of a new 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 place in my life. But I think driving back at 11 p.m. and midnight for for so many years, it kind of put my sleep cycle later to bed, later to rise. And I really find that I need to get a warm up in before I start teaching. And if I get that kind of zen time with the oboe and me, then that's great. And I, I love doing deep work. You've talked a lot about that. I love going home at the end of the day and just it's my oboe and me. The day is done. I get to just spend that that quality time, um, and it is quality time. I, I it's I really enjoy that. And I also though we you know we don't always have that time. So if I have ten minutes, <laughs> I'll I'll use it. I'll have a specific goal. I said, well, this technical passage has to be faster, so that'll be my goal, and I'll I'll might work on it in that half an hour lunch break and. You do short sessions throughout the day, especially with more technical goals, um, and you will. I, I see. I definitely see improvement, but I I do find that I'm I'm squeezing in practice time right before recital where, wherever I can. 
I but it's, it. it's a challenge because, you know, we do as teachers, we put all of my teachers put their students first. And I, I certainly hope I do the same because our, our job as teachers is definitely to, to do that. So it is, mm-hmm. it is a challenge. It is. And especially as a faculty member, you know, it would be wonderful if teaching and playing was all that we had to do, you know, but you also <laughs> have that, you know, meeting or that committee you're prepping for or, you know, that other thing. There are a lot of things to juggle. That true words were never spoken, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite question that we ask uh, is, what is your favorite memory of a past performance? Oh, that's a, you know, that's, that's a really hard question. You do, you do end a lot with that one, though. I, it's I really be... not a fair question. <laughs> <laughs> This is, I, I was thinking about this, so just so our listeners know, I have a slight confession. I, I, I've been binge listening to Double Read Dish. I've, I've had about 27 hours in the car this week, comedian from different guest lecturing um, events, and so I've been kind of preparing for this, but it's still tough. I, I think, for me, the most important ones were actually when I was a senior in high school, and my memory of them is not that clear, but I think what they represented for me and help, they helped me with my basically decision to go into music. So I would say for that reason, they're the most important. Um, I won uh, two concerto competitions in my, my senior year, but both of the Mozart with the Jacksonville Symphony. And there was just something, the rush and, and the joy of playing on stage. I don't, it's not all blur. I don't, I don't really remember, you know, but just having that experience. And I, I just, the, I, the high that I'd never felt before. Uh, but also, I just, I was really wrestling. I'm a little, um, I'm a little type A. And when I say a little type A, probably you could say extraordinarily type A <laughs> at some levels. Uh, Frillo calls me a closet type A. He says, Courtney, it's not obvious to the world that you're type A, but oh, you are. Uh, so I think, you know, going into music was really scary for me. So I was, I was a nerd in high school. I'm still a nerd. I was looking at a lot of double degree programs, but then Florida State, you know, was there. I was looking out of state. I was looking at Johns Hopkins. I was looking at schools that were not, not in state. And, and I said, you know, I'm just going to, I really enjoy this. This was an incredible experience. Maybe if I can do this again, maybe if I can spend my life pursuing this and it may not work out. Um, but I think that that experience, again, it gave me the confidence to just say, I'm going to do music and let's just, let's see where this takes me. I would like to know, um, what the best advice you can give us on read making is or and or what's the best <laughs> advice on read making that you have received? Oh, well, I think almost all the advice that I can give I have received. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that I, I don't do a lot of reinventing of the wheel with read making. So this is almost so trite. It, it's not even worth saying, but I will say it because it, I, I say it almost almost every 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 day to someone. John Mack had this saying. It's a, he said, uh, "Never take no from an inanimate object," and it was more than a saying. It actually was crocheted and framed on his wall, mm-hmm. and he would point at it at various times. And I think it's still it's still on the wall in, in Frank Rosenwein's studio, I believe, and the teacher at CIM. And he, he had, John Mackey had four rules of read making. And I, I hold by this still. And if I break any, if I break, especially the first three, I, I almost always regret it. And it's very simple, but essentially the first rule of read making is sharp knife. And the second rule of read making is sharp knife. <laughs> Do you kind of see where this is going? <laughs> That's a little redundant. And third rule of read making is, is sharp knife. And the fourth rule of read making is being able to clip an infinitesimal 
amount off of the tip. Uh, so I, I generally find that it, to this day, if I ruin a read, which of course never happens, my goodness, <laughs> uh, you know, it's because my knife isn't quite sharp and I'm not able to take the cane off in exactly the way that I, my mind's eye conceives. And John Ferrillo, I mean, I just quoted John Mack, but John Ferrillo redefined my read making. Oh my gosh, he helped my read making so much. His reads are incredible. They're just, they're so smooth and silky and focused. You can just, you feel like you can do anything on those reads. It's just incredible. You never even know that it was possible. So at this point in, in life, I mean, I spent the past four years, um, uh, so I was went to John Mack for two years. Then I had six or seven years off. So his teaching really marinated. But then I spent four years um, in my early 30s with John Perillo. So he, he completely just took my read making and transformed it. And, and really, I, I teach read making basically the way he, he teaches read making. And he's very formulaic. Um, you do this, this, and this, and you do not stray to the right or the left. Because read making, as far as I'm concerned, it's a formula. And there are many formulas out there. But you don't go inserting variables from one formula into the other because if you mm-hmm. do, your formula becomes unbalanced. Mm-hmm. So please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying there's only one way to make a read, but if you have that, if you have a formula, don't just go willy-nilly changing variables because that, that just ends in heartache. Mm-hmm. That's really good advice. Um, we like to close with the question, what words of advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Um, well, I think I'll, I'll use this, this question as, an, as a way to tie, to tie into a couple of my earlier answers, you know, um, with my, my favorite performance and the plan, I, I thought, you know, young Courtney, I thought I had a plan for my life. And <laughs> it turns out that my life has, has not gone according to whatever that plan was at all. Uh, I think that I thought I, I got into CIM, I got to with John Mack and, you know, take auditions for a few years, be, you know, and that just be an orchestral musician. And I have to say that I'm sitting here in my office, University of Iowa, with this job that I love. And I'm actually getting kind of teary now. I love my job. I love this life that I have. And I'm grateful that I, I'm grateful I didn't, I'm grateful it didn't pan out the way I thought. Okay. I'm grateful that mm. I had years of turmoil. Um, mm-hmm. I would never have said that then, trust me. Um, but uh, my life has had, and I'm not done living yet. That's the other good news. It's not like, you know, it's not like my twilight years I'm looking back. But even in, in my the decades of my 20s and part of my 30s, my life has been full of higher highs and lower lows than my young Courtney could even have known to imagine. Mm-hmm. I think all those, all those kind of go into who I am as a player and definitely who I am as a teacher. I think that I, the world, you know, the world we change and music is changing how, how people receive music with the technical, you know, we talk about this all the time. And I think that I'm kind of at the cusp. You, Gleet, you and I were talking, you know, that we're not really millennials. <laughs> we're definitely not. We're after that. But we can kind of see that world a little bit. Um, so mm-hmm. my advice is, I guess, let go of the plan a little bit and, and don't worry so much. I lost a lot of my 20s worrying. Um, and I would say that that was just, you know, uh, that's my regret is my worrying um, because things weren't going according to whatever quote unquote plan I, I thought that I had. That's the deep cut right there. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Courtney, this has been such a wonderful interview. When our listeners want to follow up with you, where can they find you on the Internet? Oh, you can you can find me on the internet at um CourtneyMillerOboe.com, the very original website, I know. 
And um, you can also find me on YouTube and, of course, the University of Iowa uh, faculty website. And, you know, you can follow me on Instagram, UIowa Oboes, and, and Twitter and Facebook. So uh, thank you. Thank you, ladies, so much for spending this time with me this morning. Thank yeah, you. it's been That's wonderful. Awesome. Thank you. As always, you can find us on all of our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can email us at doublereaddish at gmail.com. We always love hearing from you. And don't forget to join us next time for our one-year anniversary special episode with guest Judith LeClaire, Principal Bassoon of the New York Philharmonic. This is not one you want to miss.